We're lucky we had him as long as we did. And the two luckiest assholes on planet Earth. <laughs> A shop, you know. It was like a ship. He sailed it as far as he could. And God is here. Welcome to another episode of Pod 49, the Lodge 49 fan appreciation deep dive show about the long lost Lodge 49 and keeping uh, keeping the fires burning. We are at a, we're at an end of something here. We are in the doing the tenth episode of our season one rewatch. Uh, Jim, why don't you just go ahead and give us quickly the particulars about episode ten? All right, episode 10 is called Full Fathom 5, and it was directed by Randall Einhorn and written by Jim Gavin, and that same team was at the helm for the first two episodes of season one. And the needle drops for Full Fathom 5 were Luca Neary with 10, The Lilies, uh, one of the Lodge 49 house bands for sure, with Returns Every Morning. The Greg Fote group, Dark is the Sun, reprise. Uh, broadcast, maybe the spiritual band of Lodge 49, as described by uh, Jim Gavin, with their track, Where Youth and Laughter Go. And, of course, one of the most iconic songs, which we were reminded as we watched 10 uh, in the Lodge 49 musical canon, is uh, the great garage rock classic, The Squires Going All the Way. Um, as always for our season uh, season one rewatch pods, we are joined by a special guest um, and joins us in our, what now is our fifth chair, I think, uh, and that is Elizabeth Alsop, uh, a writer and journalist, and uh, that's where I'll tag it off to you, Elizabeth, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Thanks so much, Chris, and thanks everyone for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, yeah, I'm Elizabeth Alsop. Uh, I am um, my day job. I'm an assistant professor of communication media at CUNY, the City University of New York, where I teach film and media studies. And, um, and I write about film and television, um, both for academic and also popular venues. So um, yeah, I wrote, um, I, I kind of came, I don't know, should I talk about my origin story? Should I yeah, go ahead. How, yeah, how'd you okay. find yourself in the lodge? I'll dive in. Well, I'm going to give all credit to um, uh, my wonderful friend and brilliant writer, Stephanie Benson, whose husband, Nate, I think may be a friend of this show. Um, and Stephanie kind of turned me on to it. And from the first shot of the pilot of like Dud ambling down the beach with a metal detector, I was totally sold. Um, it just seemed like such a welcome departure from like the whole genre of just like mad, bad, dangerous to know characters that kind of like dominate a lot of serial TV drama. Like people were treating each other with like, kindness and generosity and it was just this like breath of fresh air um so I really loved the show's like humanism and I also you know like I just loved the vibe you know I loved I'm sure other people have talked about that you know it's just felt like this kind of kinder gentler iteration of the kind of like paranoid SoCal scene that you see in like Pynchon you know who I'm a fan of 
Um, and um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen David Milch's show, John from Cincinnati got canceled. after. Break. Yeah. So like, I was like into this. I was like, okay, I'll go, I'll, you know, the surfer stuff. I'm into it. Um, anyway. So I just, I, I just really was taken with the show. Um, and as I started watching it, um, and this is, I, I think the, the piece that, um, that I wrote for film quarterly about the show, I kind of saw it as like one of the series right now that is really, um, you know, like thinking about what it means to like live through the ravages of late stage capitalism. Um, and it obviously like that's a major theme of the show and I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, but, you know, in the in the piece for Film Quarterly, I paired it um, kind of with maybe some surprising, you know, um, sort of analogs. Um, I talked about um, uh, Atlanta um, and also Russian Doll. It shows that like really validate this idea of like solidarity and collectivity as like this sort of necessary compensation for for kind of like the lack of any other kind of safety net um, in this country. But you know, I also like think about other shows I really love, like Enlightened or you know Better Call Saul. These shows that really just are like looking at um, kind of the workplace with this real like kind of gimlet eye. So. Anyway, I, I came to the show um, and, um, you know, I feel like it's sort of like been with me ever since I was saying before we started recording, I just like did a rewatch of the first season and the last couple of days and I got like totally new stuff from it. So it's just such a rich series. Um, I'm so glad you guys have this podcast and um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> It was like partly through season one of my, you know, I, and I think at some point in season one, I was just watching them as they came out. But I did say to myself, you know, this is kind of what John from Cincinnati should have been. <laughs> right. I mean, and I feel like, I mean, I haven't watched that show in years and it was this like truncated. I don't even know if they had a full first season. I don't remember, but it, yeah, it felt like it had this like potential, this like cosmic mystical surfer. I guess that may be little noir, but um. Yeah, totally. So maybe we'll get a John from Cincinnati reboot. Who knows? <laughs> Unlikely. Yeah. Probably not. Bart, you're I, I cut you off. Oh, I was just gonna say that um I'm really happy that you're here today. And uh one of the reasons that really struck me about your article was I think at the time I had seen a, a couple articles that had come out, and I think we've kind of touched on this a few times in the show, but yours was the first one that really kind of like I felt like nailed it right on the head and it seemed to be coming from someone who actually really enjoyed the show, you know, whereas other ones were sort of, you know, I think that anytime there was something about Lodge 49, I would be like, Oh, let me look on, let me click on it and see. And, you know, it would be, they would be always be missing something, you know, they refer to Dud as a slacker. Yeah. Uh, I one time saw him referred to as a stoner. And even though the, there's many people who smoke weed on the show and Dud is not one of them. So I felt like when I read your article that it was like finally by someone who actually watched the show and really loved it. And I really liked the way that you um, started off by uh, emphasizing the music yeah. of, of the show and bringing up the, the Dylan cover. So I just thought it was like very written by somebody who kind of really got it and I really appreciated it and it really stuck out in my mind and I just want to say thanks for coming on the show I know I reached out to you to kind of you know and then we were talking about oh I really love this article and it was Nate who said oh that's a friend of mine so it was very nice that it all sort of oh, worked so out. cool yeah, yeah I mean I you're totally right I mean I feel like this show for me is very soulful and I had a very authentic response to it. And, and I can admit, admit this on, on radio, but like I cried during the season two finale in a way I don't normally cry. Like when that music cue hit like the Fairport convention song, like my husband and I were both like sobbing, like it was just such a authentically moving experience. And it was about, I think, you know, immediately preceded that whole coronation sequence that's immediately preceded by like that 
really like heartfelt kind of conversation between Ernie and Dud, where like, you know, it's it's really about, and like, you know, Ernie gives Dud his car back, this, this moment of gift giving. And it's like this way of also getting outside the transactional economy that governs everything else, right? And this whole show really seems to be about like trying to create these spaces outside of capital and outside the marketplace. And you can call them like magical spaces, but they're also, of course, like in the end, they're the spaces that that they make, right? And that exists. And so I don't know. Yeah, that's just like like built up to this amazing emotional crescendo for me. And I think that is like one of for me, like an all-time episode of of television. Like I will watch endlessly and always. Yeah. 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 Well, there's something great you said in the article about um kind of the thesis statement of like the show almost is that like kindness can be used as a tactic and not just like an anesthetic to like uh you know, sort of solve the problems. It's like of uh, that that have been created by post-industrial capitalism. Um, and you know, I, I love that idea that like, what if in what if in healing our own wounds and the wounds of others, we are healing the universe. We are like totally the collective. And yeah, um, the idea of community and that um, you know, like in post the post-industrial capitalist age, like there's this whole scarcity narrative that like. Um, we don't have enough of anything to go around or like uh, the idea that as we get more of something, it loses value. But the only thing that isn't really true for is like community and sort of like. Totally. I mean, I think that's such a great point, Claire. And I mean, I think that, you know, what is sort of amazing about the show now that you say that is like these characters respond to this sort of, you know, um, phenomenon of scarcity, not by, not with competition, right? Like, so it's not a better call Saul universe, right? Where everyone's like scrapping and like yeah. trying to kill each other, right? This is, they really respond with that kindness and generosity. So like almost everyone in the show is either like terribly in debt or laid off, right? Or struggling in some way, but, um, but it really is about this sort of ethos of collaboration and, and solidarity. Again, like I can't really think of other, you know, it's, it's just such a standout in that way. Um, and so I, and I, to your point, Bart, you know, I was thinking about how some criticism about the show seems to almost tr- like, it's a little condescending, like, oh, it's so cute. This show's so nice. It's so gentle. It's so sweet. Right. But I think there's something kind of like fierce about that idea of, of kindness, right. As being a, a political tactic and whether the show actually says that explicitly, like, I think it's there and I think it's kind of radical um, and awesome. Yeah. I mean, I do think also to some degree that uh, people maybe dance around the idea that it has a, a pretty uh, staunch, you know, it's a post, you know, a late capitalist critique, essentially. And totally. I think maybe they're bound by the, you know, rules of the game a little bit that they, you know, can't go deep into that. But I also think it's just a, you know, it seems like maybe if you write for a living and you write these quick things and that's part of what you have to do and you're like, oh, I saw the show and I liked it and blah, 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 blah. And then you write about it. And so, you know, for me, I would like click on them because I'd be so excited that someone was talking about it. And then I'd always find that it was a little bit hollow. And, uh, you know, it really, your piece really struck struck me in that regard because, I mean, I also like the other shows. I haven't seen, um, I've seen um, Russian Doll and uh, Atlanta. I haven't seen the other show. Um, but I also like the idea that like, maybe this is a new direction where mm-hmm. shows are kind of going um, in a way that we're, you know, to me that it allows for this space and this understanding. And that it, to me is a very positive direction. I, I like, so there was the way the show has a, um, you know, sort of optimistic view of life in, in, even though it's very difficult 
so too did your article, I thought, which was, um, I thought it like the article really matched what the show really was. And it kind of like it kind of immediately struck with me. And that's why I, I liked it so much. Well, that's really a nice compliment. And, you know, I will say there's a lot of terrible stuff about academia. But um, one thing that's nice about it is you can do the cold take, right? You don't have to like churn things mm-hmm. out, right? So, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think like I'm, uh, I what you said about the, you know, I think it's this new direction. Like, I'm really interested. I think one of the things I love about it is that it's not a plot driven show, right? It's really more about this sort of immersive experience. And I do see, I actually did a video essay about this, which I can promote at the end of the um, the show about like these shows that really are about kind of like, um, you know, kind of moving beyond sort of these recapable events and just kind of like, you know, really kind of leaning into these, um, these other kinds of, I don't know, other kinds of experience. So, um, yeah, I just think it's, it's, it's really, I don't know, let's hope we'll see. Yeah. It was really, it is really interesting what happened to sort of the, the writing discourse around the show. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of sympathy for the, the hacks, you know, the 23 year olds that have to recap stuff for, you know, quickly. Um, and it was a notoriously hard show to describe, And the, some of the sort of like top tier critics were very warm to the show over time. And what I find fascinating, and, and Elizabeth, I think you were one of the first people to really sort of hit on this, but then it did become a theme was just, you know, how, you know, it became a kind of pandemic panacea totally. a little bit for, for people. And I think that's why when you can watch it in totality, you don't feel the need to have to describe what it is. And then you yeah. saw like whether, you know, cause then you kind of got your typical clickbaity writers putting it mm-hmm. on lists and stuff because they actually, because there was, it was a, it's a different thing to take the whole thing in and realize they're actually, the pressure to describe it is actually a sucker's bet, a fool's errand anyway. So, totally. and you got a whole new discourse that I think was coupled with the pandemic was also coupled with the fact that they, they had vibed with the show for two seasons. And that, that's a, whether you're writing a, a paragraph blurb or a long form essay is a different beast. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, this show totally resists like summary or narrative condensation. It's just not, it can't, and it can't really be spoiled. I mean, you could tell someone the plot, but that's not why you're going to watch it, you know? And, and so I do think like, this is against kind of like a little bugbear of mine, but like, I love, I mean, I, I totally enjoy the genre of the recap and I love the history of it. And I love television without pity and all that, but like, it's also limited as a modality of critical response, right? It can't kind of do justice, as you said, Chris, you know, to the kind of show and it's sort of holistic totality. And so, um, yeah, I think you kind of, in a way, you interestingly see the limitations of the recap in dealing with a show like this um, because it, it, it kind of, yeah, you have to kind of go back. And, you know, I really enjoyed, like I loved Matt Zoller Seitz's piece about this episode. Um, I think he wrote about episode 10. I, um, and so I do think there's some really great writing about it, but um, yeah, it doesn't lend itself to recapping so well. Just the fact that it is such a hard show to describe and that we were able to generate so much conversation around that point is a testament to the fact that too much of our entertainment is so predictable and so easy yeah. to pigeonhole yeah. and so restrictive in terms of genre or the you know type of story they try to tell or being like A-list celebrity driven and that being the main point of it and everything else being kind of secondary. If anyone wants an example of it being hard to recap, go listen to some of our early season two episodes where we struggle <laughs> we struggled mightily, struggled to, mightily. To, to recaps. yeah so. i think i think one of my favorite examples of that i'm sure you some of you have maybe all of you have watched um you know the third season of twin peaks but like when they came to episode eight like noel murray from the new york times was like 
I will try as best as I can to describe <laughs> what literally happened in this show, um, this episode. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of great to just have this really visually uh, and tonally experimental sort of stuff happening. And, you know, and Lodge 49 is not as aggressively avant-garde as that, but it definitely, um, yeah, again, it's like, it feels very experiential. Like you kind of had to be there, you know. But all the uh, predictions I made that were just, terribly terribly off yeah totally wrong right and then suddenly like Cheech Marin shows up and you're like oh welcome you're here yes of course all right so this is good uh Elizabeth we're going to ask you to bring your your academic uh, your cold takes to this episode yes um, love I the love cold that. take. I love the cold, cold take. Terrible yeah. at hot takes at this show. So I okay, love good. Yeah, like you need someone like three years that. later. Like I'm your person. You know. <laughs> well, it's funny because when we did our recaps of season two, one of our little features was our hot takes, but they never were. You know, at some point Bart was like, you know, like some of our friends are telling me like what we're doing. They're not really hot takes. <laughs> they're like, we can't know that. You know, there's things <laughs> like takes. Yeah. Kind takes. Of. Yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're picking a semantic argument about whether about hot takes, it's like <laughs> you need to self-examine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's jump in. And so we changed it up here. We started with big themes, big takeaways, uh, rather than quick takes. So Elizabeth, we'll let you lead off. What was you know, what were you kind of gobsmacked with in terms of thematically in this uh, season, episode one, season 10? No. Okay. Well, I mean, I think we've already touched on this a little, so I won't belabor it. But I mean, I think the for me, this episode really kind of like distilled, brought home, highlighted, like for me, what are the kind of two sort of major and interlocking themes of the show. And one is again, the ubiquity and sort of inescapability of debt and the sort of devastating implications of that debt is like the modern condition. And, you know, that scene with like Liz, and the loan officer, which will like be forever seared into my gray matter. Um, you know, like Liz here finally manages to eliminate hers. And then sort of conversely, we have Dud kind of accepting it as the sort of state of being, right? He's about to get his stuff back from Bert. And then he's just like, forget about it, Bert. You're just gonna take everything away from me anyway. So there's no use, right? So we see like this kind of like, it's not resolved, but I just think this idea of sort of debt and indebtedness. And then kind of, again, like the flip side of that is, sort of the necessity of kind of community, which we talked about as sort of the only compensation or way, maybe like a good kind of indebtedness in a way, right? The debts we have to, to one another, um, you know, and if we have that, like, I love the whole sequence where like Jocelyn is making that impassioned speech, you know, on the phone calling England and like, you know, about brotherhood and like cross-cutting with, you know, uh, Ernie and Scott, like brawling in the lodge. Um, so on the one hand, the show kind of like playfully kind of like ironizes that idea, but then it like totally affirms the importance of, of solidarity and, um, you know, all the stuff we've, we've been sort of talking about. Um, and the idea that, you know, it is, it is different in here, you know, and I think this, this episode for me kind of keeps those, those two things really nicely, um, in balance. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's also just kind of a banger, you know, in terms of just, bringing, you know, just like big climactic sequences. I mean, we finally have, you know, um, we have a lot of like catharsis. And I think this is the first episode where we see Dud and Liz both cry, you know, so just the idea of grief, you know, um, that obviously has been sort of blatant and informing the whole show, but finally, um, you know, kind of like living with grief and, and what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, anyway, those are my big kind of thematic boom, 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 um, kind of, I think things. Those are good ones. It's, it's funny you brought up like the fight between um Ernie and Scott, like cross-cutting with the and 
like I feel like the kind of violence they're doing toward like to each other isn't as bad as like the violence that like a cap like a an inhumane capitalist system does to like the people caught in it. And like there's resolution at the end of it, like kind of like or a detente, like at least. Totally. And that's such a good point, Claire, too, about like the the kind of like tone of the show too. Like it's very slapstick. It's almost kind mm -hmm. of like there's something kind of, um, yeah, I don't know, sort of like playful about it, right? We don't, we're not encouraged to like take that seriously um, as like a real like display of aggression. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like almost anything in the show, like even the shark attack is kind of like not as bad as what the bank has done to Liz, you know, like, um, so yeah, there's, there is like the, this whole spectrum of, of, um, of kind of violence being done to these characters. Yeah, their fight kind of, I have a, uh... We adopted cats and it was, so we took two two brothers. And so every like two or three days, they just have to like, they get into it and it lasts like 10, 15 minutes and they make a lot of noise. It's usually at like three in the morning, but like they just scrap and then it's over. And uh, when I was watching them fight, it kind of reminded me of that. Cause it's like, yeah. there isn't, there, was, there wasn't even, I mean, there probably was, but I feel like there, you know, usually in the fight scene, there's like a whoosh and those yeah. kind of noises. And there wasn't even that. It was just like two like brothers wrestling almost, yeah. you know, like that's what it sort of reminded. It was kind of, right. it was like family. Jocelyn, yeah. Jocelyn's like talking about it made sense because it was like, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was comical, but it was, but it also made sense because it kind of, you know, sometimes you just need to like, get that out a little bit but it doesn't mean that you don't have a affinity and love for each other so yeah we're a very progressive podcast in that we call fights between men cat fights oh so. i love that yeah i totally <laughs> i totally sign off on that yeah i mean i love that you know and i think that's such a good point bart because like a few episodes earlier i can't remember which you know we see liz and dud fighting right and same thing they're just like rolling around yeah. on the ground yeah. kind of clumsily right they're not actually trying to hurt each other nobody's like, violent no yeah. one's well, violent. She right? does. She does kick him in the in the. Oh, that, yeah. Okay, that is true. That is true, Jim. That As, was a very low yeah. blow. That was yeah. low blow. Yeah. As yeah. someone with brothers, though, when you're fighting with someone who's bigger than you, you will do whatever it takes to like. Fair. Yeah. yeah, I was. Yeah. A, I was a little worried for Ernie. I mean, Scott, I would not want to take on. You know. Um, yeah. So Definitely. yeah, but it comes. But I mean, you're right. I mean, that's like that's what family does, right? So in a way it is proving Jocelyn's point that this is like, this is like a, a scrap, you know? And I also like to think about it, you know, along the lines of a cat fight is like this sort of like, you know, sending up of the kind of like super masculine aggression that again, seems to characterize so much of our televisual entertainment and um, which I come to find tedious. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I love the fight. So I had a theme that I identified which was discoveries. Mm -hmm. Uh, we had Ernie finding the tunnel under the floor. And my mm -hmm. discoveries are very literal. Leading to the trailer and finding El Confidente. Uh, we had Blaze finding the alchemical equipment behind the wall. Well, here's one that's, that's a little more abstract or esoteric. This is, this is my notes from two weeks ago. <laughs> I watched it on a plane. Dud finds a sort of peace with what his dad was all about. Mm -hmm. And then we, the viewers, discover that there is something to Larry's sto story and that the scrolls are, in fact, real. Beca becomes clear when Lodge 1 decides to keep Lodge 49 open. And he has that moment of... It's interesting because he's sitting there writing the eulogy, right? Which is like a big, you know, thing because he, you know, he was pretty angry with Larry and, you know, legitimately so, whatever. But, you know, he, he has that breakthrough. And then as soon as he crosses that, like, a... Uh, emotional doorway is when he discovers the the tunnel which is when he goes you know 
Confidente, there's a validation of that story. And, you know, so it's almost like, you know, when you make that kind of social emotional change about a, a view of something, it's even something as complex and where those emotions of anger are, were real and legitimate, but there's like a, a trans, you know, transference of that, that opens up a new possibility, which then also may actually give you a new perspective on what you were originally upset about. So I thought that was such a, a beautiful way. And this one thing I did notice on this one was, you know, how it lingers on the eulogy, right? Like you mm -hmm. really like, it's not subtle. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I did stop and read all of it. Yeah, yeah. But I did, I did that before on previous watches too, but yeah. Um, but also, so I think for, for Dud, the point about him coming to peace with his dad and his actions was when they're on the golf course, Dud and Ernie are sitting on the Larry bench. In love and memory of a lying asshole. Yeah. yeah. Larry was a liar. <clears throat> Pretty much ruined everything for everybody. But he did it for us. I mean, he did all that stuff to keep the lodge open, keep everybody together, give them a place to go. And then I think that resonates with him as he's saying, mm -hmm. that he's talking about his dad too. And it gives him that almost, I mean, it's hard to say forgiveness because he spent so, so long really denying that his dad had done these somewhat, you know, detrimental or destructive things like putting Liz $80,000 into debt. Um, he had kind of blown that off. But I think, you know, within the past few episodes, he sort of, you know, came to terms with, the negative side of it and then has now by this episode come more to, to peace with it i was just gonna say along the same lines in the beginning i really felt so the actor who plays bill dudley his name is tom nowicki and i think he does such an excellent job of portraying the charming bullshitter mm. just i recognize so many people i have known in my life in his performance and just like you can't help liking them, but you know there's something shady about them, or you know that there's there, there's something under the surface that maybe isn't going to be good for you if you're dealing with them, or it's like, you know going to get you in some kind of trouble. And just in the beginning, when he goes into donuts and he's talking to Alice and he fits, he's like about to ask her dad for money and doesn't, and then goes into to Bert instead. Yeah, so I just I just feel like that performance really summed up what we. Have been able to piece together through clues provided by so many other characters at this point of what his character is really like you know so you took away from the exchange between um between dud senior i guess and uh and paul that um that he was going to ask him for money did you think he was going to say like look like, after my look, kid yeah look after yeah, my that's, kid that's, yeah. Right, yeah. that's, 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 that. that's interesting i didn't think about that yeah cross my mind but then i thought I don't see him doing that, but I don't know. I've, maybe it's open-ended enough that it's could have been. It could be, yeah. 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 yeah that's interesting. I, I mean, definitely thought he was going to ask for money. I, yeah, I think. Because you guys are so cynical. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. He, but then he goes right after to Bert and is just like, all right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Money, that, that you makes know? Sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like he, he would, he would kind of rather borrow it from 
Paul because of, then he doesn't have to pay the huge interest you know, interest on it. Yeah. Terrible terms, yeah. But then he also knows that like, well, you know, then I'll ruin my relationship with Paul. And I don't, you know, and it's like, I don't know that I'm going to pay it back. You know, it's like when he's talking to Liz and he's like, you know, and the summer season's right around the corner and uh, it's going to pick up. And you can tell that he's telling himself this, but he doesn't really believe it. And I think he knows that he doesn't really want to do that to Paul. And yeah. he just sort of decides yeah. not A to. A fellow working I, I, guy. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't considered that and I like it. But I, at the same time, I think that that's such a deep thing. I, I don't know that he would say that like um, over the donut counter. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It'd right. more be like, oh, let's go get some drinks or something. I don't know, yeah. but I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I think I lo- oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was nope. just gonna say. I mean, I think this like this open endedness is also just one of the things I love about the show. Like, I feel like yeah. just at the moment where I've been convinced by the show that like, okay, well, Bill definitely meant to kill himself. And there's like a real explanation for this. And it's grounded in all these logistical particulars, like the show, like, you know, flips it and kind of sort of reasserts its own commitment to like mystery and like, you know, the kind of ineffable and it was the shark and who knows what's going on. And, you know, it kind of like the phrase that came, this is where I'll get like put on my professor hat, but like the phrase that kind of came to mind at the end of this episode as rewatching it was like, it kind of has this like Keatsian negative capability, right? Where we're just sort of meant to live in the mystery of this. And like, maybe we'll never know, like a lot of shows, like they set out like one kind of question, you know, like who killed JR? Like, did Bill mean to kill himself? And like, the show's like, we're not gonna answer that. Like, you're just gonna have to kind of like live with the the kind of some level of doubt or like there's two seemingly, um, equally plausible um, sort of explanations here. So I just really like the resistance to kind of like definitively answering or kind of like flipping things just as um, as you think you've reached this moment of certainty. So I dug that. I was yeah, gonna say something very similar. I think that it, you're intended to, it's intended to read both ways up until the very last line of the episode, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, so I think that the, the the duality of those options and the mysteries was completely intentional. So I think you're supposed to read, you know, both those paths from that scene with Paul. And there's, I mean, there is a bit of like the high and the low to the show, right? So there's Mm -hmm. like, sometimes there's like sight gags and, um, you know, visual humor that's like fun and enjoyable. And in the same way, just like you're saying, like who shot JR, there's a lot of shows that have like mysteries that you're waiting to find out. And we, and this show certainly has those as well. And I think that the reveal on those things is that you kind of realize that it ultimately doesn't really matter. Right. You know, it's one of the things I've always really appreciated about the show is that it's not like um, promising something it doesn't deliver. It's delivering the whole time. And the only thing that it, you know, it does, it's kind of reassuring you that like, you'll never know the answers to these things. And I sort of, in a weird way, appreciate that. And And I think it does provide answers if you think about it long, it, like it, it's not, it doesn't say the answer, but if you think about the show afterwards, you realize that it does give you your answer. You know, like I was thinking about how I made the ter- terrible prediction that we were going to see more of Captain in season two. And then, <laughs> and then I was watching him in the hospital bed and, and he's like back with his ex-wife and she's com- comforting him. And I'm like, oh, it's so clear that this storyline is over. Yeah. You know and I mean? It, and it, it like now after watching it, like, four times or something like that I finally sort of got it and I feel like there's a lot of those kinds yeah. of things that like all like the, the answers come from within and then you can kind of like project on that what you will but it, it it's always there it doesn't need to be uncovered and that's that's why it's you know that's a big part of its brilliance in my opinion 
Right, who else had big themes? Um, I have I have like kind of a theme. I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say with it, but uh, maybe you guys can help me out. This is a choose your own adventure type of situation. So um, uh, there's this kind of like warring uh, worldviews between folks about uh, whether like whether you should like uh, participate in the grind mm -hmm. and like hard work or if there is a shortcut, if there is a way sort of out of the maze. You know, I, I see it come up when like Bob is telling Ernie that. Hey, I tried telling you, Ernie, these big razzle dazzle projects never pan out. And then Ernie um, carries that over to Dud when he said like, there's no magic or whatever he said, it's just the grind. And the sooner you accept that, the better. Liz sort of rejects the idea of like some easy way out when she jumps overboard at that like uh, corporate thing. Um, mm -hmm. And she kind of chooses the grind in favor of that. But then at the end of the episode, she figures a way out of debt that's like pretty outside the box and um, might not work for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like I, maybe for Liz, like part of why she likes the grind is like she wants to believe that like in the modern age, hard work does pay off. Mm -hmm. Like she has to believe in that. But um, for all the, for a lot of the characters in the show, that just isn't the case, you know? Yeah. Even Ernie yeah, said, or sorry. No, go ahead, Claire. I was going to say, I mean, I think you're right. Liz seems like more attached to like the idea of the meritocracy. Like yeah. she keeps like walking up to it and then she's like, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and Bob who like, who had just told Ernie that like razzle dazzle projects don't turn out. Um, he then tells Ernie that they don't care about how much experience he has. Uh, beautiful Jeff has some like X, like it factor, you know, he has some ineffable quality that just makes him better at it. Like, yeah, it's, so it is. I don't try. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. try. He doesn't yeah. try. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's always those. There's always that guy, you know. Like, um, so yeah, so in the beginning of the episode, we have Dud running out of gas again, and he comes across mm -hmm. our familiar Is There Another Way to Live billboard? And this time, someone has graffitied no on it, and there's that pessimism, and then that leads to what Elizabeth was talking about earlier with he's just kind of like, I'm gonna give up my car, I'm gonna whatever or it's the system's going to get me, Bert's going to get me, whatever. I happened to watch episode eight, nine, and 10 all together because I hadn't participated in, in the episode eight recap that the, these guys did. Mm -hmm. And there's something Bob says about Ernie um, when he's like, oh, he got this, he got this captain deal. Let this man be an inspiration to all of you. Sure, you're looking at Ernie thinking, Here's a middle-aged nobody on the downslope of a mediocre career. Who cares? Well, I care. And there's a point in the beginning of this episode where Ernie is looking at himself in the mirror in his West Coast Super Sales outfit, and, and he looks so so downcast or downtrodden. And I'm like, he's thinking of that. He's thinking of himself yeah. in that way, you know? No, and I think I love, you know, this this sort of, idea that you and Claire are both sussing out because for me in some ways when I think about this episode like in terms of the narrative structure it kind of exists in two parts and the first part seems to sort of like almost endorse Ernie's worldview right that it's just the grind there's nothing magic and all the characters are trying to like come to terms with that and reconcile themselves to that in various ways and then kind of starting I think with the moment where Blaze discovers the alchemical instruments suddenly the show seems to like pivot and like 
kind of commit to this idea that, wait, there are maybe inexplicable forces at work. And so we have this sort of like momentum up until the moment of sort of Dud having his kind of, you know, like beach epiphany or whatever, um, where the show seems to move from like this realism to kind of mysticism. And I think, again, keeping those two strands always in 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 balance in a way. Um, but like, so when I kind of watched it, I was like, this feels so elegantly done, right? That, um, you know, that it, it kind of gives both of these worldviews kind of like equal airing. You know, my my big thing was just tra- metamorphosis or transformation. Mm-hmm. And it's in that those scenes, Elizabeth, that you're talking about that we sort of see that and and what and and most of them you know i already sort of mentioned ernie with the eulogy but they all they all come to some level of acceptance or you know live being in the moment a little different way that then opens up that door of possibility right like so even Mm -hmm. dud going into the water he literally shaves right so we have uh you know every you know there's what the big kind of six characters that are like you know on the poster so to speak and we see all of those six characters go through some level of metamorphosis but comes after some level of acceptance or Mm -hmm. even a, a shattering of a previous held worldview yeah, that's great. I mean, and they're like literally going through doors too. I mean, there's so much sort of like, you know, that that theme of metamorphosis um, and kind of threshold crossing. And I think, oh gosh, I did not do my homework, but I mean, I think the title, right, is from The Tempest. Yes. Um, right. And I think, I can't remember, I, I you know, but like my, my grad school training is failing me, but um, I think it's from that speech that Ariel gives about how your father's dead, but he do, he doesn't, he's not dead. He does suffer a sea change, right? This idea of metamorphosis and this idea maybe of thinking about Bill as not, maybe he is dead, but Bill, you know, Dud also has this vision of him on the beach. So this is a half-baked sidebar that I will research after this, but um, but I think it's kind of, you know, maybe latent in the title as well. Well, yeah, the 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 first line of that light speech is like, full fathom five, thy father lies. And- I just um, looked it up, if you guys wanna thank hear Thank you, Jim, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Full fathom five, thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade. But doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs, sea nymphs, hourly ring his knell. Ding dong, hark. Now I hear them. Ding dong, bell. So what you said, Chris. Yeah. 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 Um. And Bart, you're the last, what was your theme? Uh, yeah, mine was very close to what you were saying. I kind of wish I went ahead of you. Um, but it was uh, <laughs> like sort of a reckoning was was the word that I was kind of thinking of. You know, it, they, the, the characters do go through these metamorphoses, but they also like, it, it comes first when they kind of accept who they are. And it, it, you know, and it's it's almost a little too on the nose. Like I was like, oh, I, I'm so on this, but it's like, yes, this is the final episode of the season. This is why this is sort of happening. Um, but there was something, you know, about how they all had to kind of come, they had to admit what their faults were in order to like break through to the next thing, you know? And so like you have the speech from Ernie, I'm a 59 year old man. I work paycheck to paycheck, do not do what I'm doing, you know? Um, even Jocelyn, I think, you know, he before he has his beautiful speech on the phone, which I think wraps up the entire series in a nutshell, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's sitting there listening to them, t- telling him like how he could be the hero. Um, you know, <clears throat> Liz sort of, Liz has, Liz and Dud have this like uh, beautiful moment in the in the shop and she kind of like, mm-hmm. when L- and Dud kind of like, he's like, uh, and he just thinks and he goes in and she's there. And then he says that, like, you know, you're right. 
about dad. And then so he has this really candid moment with her. And then she kind of immediately comes back with like, um, what does she say? She's, she's like, he like he sailed the ship, whatever. Yeah. She, she yeah. like, she's been the one that's been critical of him, but now she's the one being easy on him and okay. sort of saying that like he did the best he could and kind of forgiving him a little bit. And then from these moments, um, and even Connie, I think, you know, cause Connie like goes, she's in mm -hmm. London and she's like, you know, what does he say? Like, like they, they have this realization that she, like that's when Scott realizes or Scott tells Ernie that she's got this brain thing. And then Ernie figured, you know, has to like talk to her about it. And she's like, uh, we're all on a clock, you know, like it seems like everybody has this kind of like breakthrough moment and then gets better, is better off uh, because of it. The, the exception I think of Dud who, um, finally decides to go in the water and get hit by a shark. But it does seem like Dud is constantly getting beat up. And he's like, you know, he's the thing that we're all following and has to take the abuse of the way of the world as he goes through it. You know, he's sort of the captain of this ship, you know, like he goes through everything that everybody's, that everybody else is going through. And he literally takes a lot of, you know, Claire, actually I was watching your uh, clip of all the things, the ways that Dud gets like, harmed in the show and I like when you put it that bluntly and like you know in a two-minute clip it's like yes this is a big part of the show where Dud kind of is takes the brunt of this and he's the perfect person to weather that storm you know yeah I just thought it was like a big reckoning for people where they kind of they had to kind of admit something about themselves and, and they all it's almost like they're all like the, the way I thought of it was like if you're on your deathbed and you've got nothing left to sort of hide anymore you can go ahead and say something about yourself that maybe you've kept, you know, hidden or afraid to admit or something like that. And they all have this brutal honesty about themselves, which then kind of opens this door for them to kind of like get past it and move into a new frame of being, which is much healthier for them in, you know, how they, when they get there. So it's always a better thing for them. And of course with Liz, she sort of comes to this realization and then she's able to kind of like confront the bank and it works yeah. out well for her. And then she has that moment where she just like bursts into tears because she can't believe that she's like free of this economic bondage that she's been stuck mm -hmm. with. And, um, you know, so for me, it just kind of was like, I just wrote the word reckoning and I was like, oh man, this is what I just, like, it just keeps happening. And it's so beautiful. And it's just, you know, all these characters kind of going through these sorts of things and, I kind of see the moment with Liz crying in a different way. I, I do think part of it is that she's free from the debt. And I can't, wow, this has been such a burden and such a weight on her shoulders. But I feel like there's another element to it. And that that was the last thing tying her to her dad. It was like mm. also oh. kind of the death of her relationship with her yeah. father. That's interesting. That debt being severed. And yeah, that in the phone, right? Yeah, she, she lost yeah. the phone. Yeah. yeah. And she yeah. brings it up with in the that voicemails. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then it's just like this whatever emotions she's been holding in just totally let loose yeah yeah well and that kind of I think also that that scene you were just highlighting in the surf shop where you know Liz is giving the kind of lovely idea of you know he sailed the ship as far as he could and he got us here and that's like yeah but where are we and so the idea of displacement too so like there's a sense of possibility but the flip side is like Liz is sort of like untethered right she doesn't have mm -hmm you know, from Shamrocks, which is not actually her home. He meant it as a metaphor and from Omni, probably better off, but, you know, and, and that kind of like, you know, there's possibility there, but also a, a kind of terrifying uncertainty. All right. Well, let's jump into one of the things, Elizabeth, you mentioned it earlier. That's just a joy about watching this for the second or third or whatever amount of times is just 
little moments that mm-hmm. jump out at you, you know, that, that you just don't get in the first few watches. Uh, I'll, I'll start and get let everyone tee theirs up. Uh, and this has become a bit of a, a TV and movie cliche at this point, but this had a beautiful drone shot. That overhead drone shot of the shark attack with the, the help yeah. coming out and the kelp bank and the shark swimming away and du- and the, it, it was you know i was like now that is a good use of uh drone in a, a tv <laughs> uh, production it was 100%. a really beautiful shot yeah i feel like this show has these like it's like these big cinematic moments right where it's just like boom and i i think it was you're right it was so like kind of just lyrical um and moving and i think one of the only uses of slow motion in that whole sequence too we get like some like you know, which can be overused, but I think it doesn't use it very much. It's used, right, yeah, well, judiciously. Judiciously. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, this isn't something I missed the first time. It's something I'm always thinking about is Malibu Jocelyn. Like just his transformation into totally. like a beach guy is lovely and wonderful. And I just, I'm just so happy for him. <laughs> you know, he's just living his best life. Um, uh, but something I never noticed was the gas station attendant saying to Dud uh, when he's getting the gas, he says, um, they say the ground at Orvis is so toxic. It's been causing hallucinations. It's um, like all of Long Beach has been tripping. Yeah. And yeah. and that's that's interesting. Like, I don't want what everyone's saying to be hallucinations. You know, I do want it to be like them just kind of seeing behind the veil or whatever. Uh, yeah. And that's uh, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely, that, I think that was the one note I did take was that line. <laughs> so I had a few small moments. One was, oh wait, so let me ask you guys, when Dud is smoking on the beach, is that his dad's last cigarette that he yeah. got up from the I roof? I thought so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So the that... lighter is from uh, Larry's uh, mm-hmm. like box. box yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, pack. okay, right, right, right. Um, so one of them was when Dud's at Ernie's and, you know, the crow cause as crows do <laughs> is that a crow uh, where'd, you, where'd you get it from i found him he hurt himself somehow oh, wow. how do you know it's a boy crow <laughs> <laughs> and you know we've often talked you guys usually chris uh but chris and bart have talked about like throwaway lines that are really funny yeah. and i'm always when i hear that i'm always like what do you mean throwaway? like jim gavin no it's not, not nothing is throwaway <laughs> but i know but i think i finally got like what you really because you know, it was a line that doesn't get like the action moves on, the dialogue moves on and it's not dwelled on and whatever, but it's, it's, yeah, it's hilarious. And, and also like, you know, kind of a fundamental question. Why do we always like assign, not always, but often assign a gender to, to animals for whatever yeah. reason in our minds, you know, when we don't know what they are. Just one more. It was when Blaze is talking about his past and we find out how much of a searcher and a seeker he has been. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. talks about looking for truth or enlightenment or a way to make his mark. Um, he said, I couldn't handle med school or the seminary or the commune or India. Then I found the links in alchemy. It was just another dead end. You know, and again, with the, the start, the way we start with on the pessimistic side um, before things turn and, and develop, as, as, as Elizabeth was saying, I kind of forgot about 
that we get that glimpse into more of Blaze's past. Yeah, I mean, sort of inspired by your previous comment, Jim, I wanna sort of shout out the scene of Liz at Shamrocks with Gerson and Champ and Jeremy. And for me, all those scenes are like a joy. Um, But you know, like that little riff about like, he's gonna go to his nephew's baptism and he's gotta like protect him (laughs) from poison soup. And like, you know, this like little shtick that like doesn't have any narrative function, but like that the show makes makes space for that. You know, um, I love that about the show. And I, again, like, I think it's also, of course, I think it does serve like a characterizing function. And like, it, it's one of these moments too, where like, I like the way the show shows that like, you know, it, it, these characters are so eccentric and so particular. And it is like this kind of resistance against corporate homogeneity, like Omni can do its best, yeah. but it will not defeat, you know, like Champ and Gerson and all of their weirdness. Um, so <laughs> I just love like the way the show uses them and keeps them in play but I love the idea of poison soup and the thing I did not notice that I am so glad I noticed this time was Liz's corporate boyfriend reading the pedagogy of the oppressed um in his office (laughs) so yeah which is like you know kind of like this weird they're like you know they're they'll just like amalgamate anything into their messed up corporate worldview um whether or not it is completely antithetical to everything they stand for so yeah totally I don't I mean I I don't know when's the last time any of you all have watched like um major network television i mean i'll like visit my mom and that's kind of all she watches and there'll be like uh subtitles on and so it's like ncis london or whatever and like there's like three characters in the whole show and every other character is just like a quick throw in nothingness you know what i mean and so this show like really stands apart from that like like the orbis or the, the homogeneity of the corporate structure you know, you see in like this major network work show dichotomy of that towards, you know, Lodge 49, where they all, uh, ev- there's not a single stone unturned. No. You know, every single character matters. Every single thing matters. You know, there's, it's just like such an artful touch to every single aspect of it. And I think that that has a lot to do with what the show is sort of saying, which is that like, we all matter, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, we're not just like, people are a real flesh things you know they're not just background they're not just like uh, wallpaper you know they are real people and you can really tell how much this show goes to great lengths to make every single person a real viable thing and that's why you you know you have these little moments that just like add to their depth and stuff like that of you know of course well, it's like yeah it feels like every character has their own trajectory and their own path mm-hmm. and like and wants and needs and things going on yeah, I love that. Um, I have some small moments. Um, well, one, I really loved uh, when we see the backstory of the watch and it sort mm-hmm. of ends with um, Dud Sr. And, you know, there's this like, the beach is kind of like going out and then the water is above it, you know, on a yeah. like a plane this way. But you just see him kind of going down, 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 and he kind of just disappears. You never see him go into the water. You know, obviously, what happens, but it's just like it's it's very poignant. It the whole scene is about five seconds, but you know, I was almost in tears, just kind of like knowing what we know and sort of watching him sort of go down that way. Um, there's a lot of serenity with the water mm-hmm. in the show, um, but with also uh, the other side of it being that like there's a lot of danger that is mm-hmm. there as well um and so i always find that to be a very interesting part of the show and then of course as uh i know i've brought this up probably a lot of times but as the father of boy girl twins 
the intuition that Dud has that Liz is in the shop and he just sort of thinks and he goes in there. He's like, oh, I thought I'd find you here. Yeah. Complimented with at the end when she kind of immediately recognizes that something is wrong with Dud and rushes to the beach. Uh, those were sort of my favorite small moments. Yeah. The Dud fam, the Dudley family was very big small moments for me in this one. I have to just say for a second here, I, I, to to Bart's mom, I, I've also reached the I have the uh, sub <laughs> the subtitles on when I watch stuff set portion of my life. So. No, no shame about subtitles. Yeah, I'm sure I'll be there soon enough. Yeah. I mean, you know, eighty four, knock on wood. I mean, yeah. you know, that's the what way it goes, and just, it's like she probably doesn't know many other channels she has like 10 channels she watches and like you know it's abc cbs nbc and then the catholic one and then you know catholic one it's like one it's like Uh, iwtn or something new to me even (laughs) all right well this is also the part of the show where we'd like to go even deeper so we've done themes we've done small moments but now we're going to deduce some of the secrets of the scrolls which can be literal pot points or things that we found. And, you know, this is often turned into the uh, tarot corner. And uh, this one, th- this one also was not subtle. We've tracked the, the hangman a few times, uh, but, but we get it right there hanging underneath the uh, doorway, the, uh, mm. the, the secret alchemical locker. So I thought I'd just, Bring us up to di- up to speed here on the meaning of this card, and it, I think it's going to resonate with some of our earlier conversation. The hanged man can represent a state of psychological immobilization after significant ego assault. When you have exe- exhausted all attempts at negotiation and have reached an irresolvable stalemate or impasse, total surrender is your only remaining option. Relinquishing control is the only way out of an emotional pain and suffering. Starting the process of forgiving yourself and others is key to the seemingly incarcerated archetype. Forgiveness means to give back or return any ego assaulting energy rather than allow it to continue to delineate your life experience. Well, that feels a lot like what Bart was talking about about with like reckoning and how, um, yeah, everyone kind of has to accept some, like has to undergo an ego assault, like. Um, like when Bart was talking, I, I almost said ego death, but then I realized that I don't fully understand what that means. So I didn't really <laughs> want to like, you know, hitch my wagon to that. They have to accept something about themselves and either like, you know, done returning to the water is sort of a surrender. Like it's just mm-hmm. that, you know, like the Dudleys belong, like you've been resisting your true nature for so long because you've been embarrassed about your foot and everything. I don't like to ding the show very often, but... That was one bad fake animal. The oh, otter, the, the sea lion, yeah. or the, yeah. the sea lion. I yeah, couldn't that. tell I, in my notes. I had otter, and then I had seal. Like question mark. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was a sock puppet. I think maybe. Okay. Yeah, well, maybe, whatever it was, it was definitely a sock. Yeah. yeah, maybe it was meant to be sort of an homage to the um, gopher and Caddyshack. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, by You know, Jim, I can't tell you what the filmmakers were were thinking there, but. With absolute certainty, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> have you, out of curiosity, have you guys talked about like the use of animals in this show a lot? Like I'm sure you talked about the crows and stuff, but I'm just some, so fascinated. Some, but let's go yeah. deeper. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I have nothing, I do not have a unified theory on this. I just love the way the show uses animals. It reminds me a lot of like Fellini where like suddenly they'll just be like a peacock in the frame or like a horse right. wanders in. And it's this sort of like, like reminder of like the radical contingency. I mean, I don't know if that's, it's also just very surreal, but like 
in the case of this show, it's just like, it's often like fate comes in the form of some, some animal in a way that feels very kind of mythic and ancient and kind yeah. of like in line with all of the shows sort of cosmology. Um, but here I was thinking, and again, maybe I'm a little too far out on a limb, but, um, you know, I, I've taught this play before, and I don't know if anyone here has talked about um, Sophocles' Philoctetes. Have you guys ever talked about mm -hmm. it? It's about a guy who was fighting the Trojan War with Odysseus, and then he, they, when they're like stopping on an island, he gets bit by a snake and the wound doesn't heal. Holy shit. Oh. And, then, and they, they leave him behind, and he's like stranded there by himself. So it doesn't really, the plot doesn't exactly follow, but what's interesting about it is like, in sort of like ancient Greek mythology, like there's a reason he got bitten. Like he offended a goddess until like a snake bit him. Like he messed with her temple or something. But here it's like, we don't know. Like there's just this, again, this sort of like mystery. And like, we keep trying to interpret these signs, the augury of birds or, you know, whatever. And like, we kind of can't, like we lost our ability to do that. Or like we were sort of like missing some link there. So I know I just really like the way the show kind of like sends us these animals. And then we're like, this must mean something. What does it mean? What is this? And like, no, we don't, we don't really know, you know, it's just yeah. there. Right. So that's my riff on animals. <laughs> right. well, yeah, you got the seal on the highway. You got, you got possums. Yeah. yeah. Right. Possums. We got crows. Possums. Yeah. Possums. yeah. yeah. And, and horn animal, horn, horn animals, animals. Yeah. And in this episode, we get another one in that, uh, El Confidente's van has the horn oh, yeah. white yeah, Bengal right. tiger. Yeah. Like narwhal thing too, so call yeah, that the narwhal, yeah, yeah right. rhino, unicorn, donkey corn, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, there's a lot of lot of fun animal stuff for sure. And the crow is definitely in many mythical cultures. The crow mm -hmm. has a ton of meaning. So like, you know, well, actually, I guess Ernie has two familiars because he's got the cat yeah. and the crow. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Never forget Fernando. Never forget. <laughs> First favorite. It's my favorite. <laughs> My Secret of the Scrolls, I feel like I've brought this up before, so um, I'll try to think of something else if I have. Um, the alchemy behind, like, the watch, basically, how Bert is sort of single-handedly responsible for elevating, for, like, artificially inflating, like, the value of the watch. Mm -hmm. How that kind of foreshadows, like, the next season's preoccupation with, like, currency and, um, and Bitcoin. Believe me, it's an investment. Yes, an investment. I, lo I also love it's that briefly, yeah, briefly Herm is like weirdly touched that Bert would just like give him money for a fake watch and then Bert just shatters that. This thing's fake. It's worthless. I know that. I mean, he doesn't. Well, why'd you give him four grand? You heard what happened to Dud. Mm -hmm. Bill needs the money to go get him. Damn, Bert. Eventually, one of the Dudleys will buy it back for twice what I paid. They're sentimental. Oh. Believe me, it's an investment. So was I. Yeah, I was such, like, too. I, and got me. I think that Bert's reaction is really um, to cover his ass a little bit. Like, I, I think was he's wondering. sentimental. And yeah. I think he's just saying that because he doesn't want his tough to to see a soft side to him because then it's a slippery slope yeah i think there's like a little breakthrough humanism there like we get a little mm -hmm. softer still softer side of bert i mean how did he know that dud that he was going to pick up dud right like he's obviously yeah. that you know there's like the part yeah yeah i mean there's obviously some sort of familial thing just happening in that strip mall that like i mean it was all of them against the pool party family 
Yeah. You know, like they've never been more united than when there was like an interloper. Anybody else deduce something? I mean, there's a lot of them, just the discovery of the tunnels. You know, there's a lot of actually literal ones that are like you start to see that I even think the hallucinations, you know, at Orbis, the tunnels, El Confidente himself. El you Confidente, know. yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of like, which is a good, you know, season ending type of stuff. There's a lot of just good, like, those kind of secrets will be revealed kind of to part Bart's earlier point. Like yeah. it does, it doesn't always play, you know, three card Monty with that stuff. It might not mean much or even be that, you know, kind of interesting in a way, but you know, but it, it, it does, it's, it, it's interest isn't a shell game. I also like um, when Dud goes in to fight the possums uh, <laughs> and he's got like a broom and a, and a yeah. lid and yeah. it's a, like, you know, the Don Quixote, which we rarely talk about, really, um, you know, it's in the opening uh, credits. You know, you see the imagery of Don Quixote, which I don't even think I noticed till season two. But like um, and of course, there's the, you know, Night and the Squires and all that kind of stuff. Impossible dream. Impossible yeah. dream. And um, but in that one scene, when he goes in there, you're, I'm just like, oh, yeah, Don Quixote, yeah. you know, yeah, it's a nice little reminder of that. <laughs> yeah, that's like a brilliant little sequence. This is like not really a, a nature noticing at all. I just, when I was rewatching the first season, I think it's in either the pilot or maybe one of the first two episodes where Dud is like asked about what happened to him. And he said, you know, someone's like, oh, is it a shark? And he's like, a shark, I wish. And so yeah. like, just an example <laughs> of like how the show kind of like, again, very obviously artfully constructed. Um, and, uh, and, and so like, yeah, we kind of see that, that come full circle in a way. Yes, that was Beth. Who the character about to eventually marries him, who was uh, played by Bert <laughs> Rentschler, and she was one of our guests on our uh, episode one recap along with her husband Alex Klein. So I've been rewatching some of season two, kind of out of order as well. And when she shows up at higher stakes, yeah. Beth, you know, it's her bachelorette party, and she's in right. the kitchen with um, you know, uh, Liz is like, come back to the kitchen, you can have a shot with me because all her friends are pregnant and they're not drinking. Yeah. She's kind of like, oh, how's Dud? What's what's up? And then Liz says, like, oh, he got bit by a shark. And that's like, oh, I thought it was a snake because she remembered. <laughs> yeah, he was the one who thought it was a shark. And then it's like, then just like, no, that was both. Now it's it's like both. <laughs> snake yeah. and another shark. Yeah. What does Dud say? He's like, uh, the worst thing to ever happen to me has already happened. Already happened. Yeah. 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 It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, no, yeah. Dude. shark in like yeah. an hour. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's come to that point in the show where we all name our alchemist of the week. Who is the character that created uh, some kind of alchemical change uh, that you were highlighting this week? We've had a lot of good ones. Uh, let's see. Uh, 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 Elizabeth, would you like to go first or would you like to defer? I'll give guest choice. Sure. I mean, I think mine is like very on the nose, so I'll just get out of the way. I mean, I think I've already hinted at it too, but I'm going to, I'm going to give Blaze the, um, the, the title of Alchemist of the Week, partly because he finally kind of like gets for a moment to like be an alchemist in a way. And like he discovers his, you know, gets a little gold on his finger, but also because like, as I was saying, I sort of see this as like the, that scene is sort of like an inflection point in the episode and it kind of catalyzes, um, you know, this, this sort of shift that kind of carries on through the subsequent scenes. And I even noticed like the next, I think it's the subsequent scene right after that, where Ernie's sitting with a eulogy and like the whole shot is suffused in like gold, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the upholstery is gold, the light is gold. And so there's this way in which that scene seems to just kind of like 
I don't know, be, be again, this kind of gateway into this, this um, kind of like latter um, portion of the, the episode. So after like blazes, like, you know, this, you were talking about Jim, like his, his questing and his searching this kind of little payoff moment for him felt very validating. So, um, so I'm going to shout him out. I did right. love the finger swipe. That yeah. Was, I mean, it's just yeah. like, it's, it's, you know, it's, I love that. It was just a great, a great moment. Such a hopeful uh, glimpse into season two. You're like, oh. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, this is like, all oh, this could happen. Yeah. yeah. I do think that that gold swipe that he gets, like, in in the second season, I think that turns out to be the, like, gold dust yeah. that, like, right. But, you know, it's still, like, it's a very, very powerful, that, uh, what's his nuts? Um, Wallace Smith, like, put mm-hmm. in there to, like, trick Jackie. But, um, you know, she wasn't fooled. But that's, like, yeah, that's. Well, we need these moments of uplifting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Drudgery. And a yeah. little bit of hope just to like keep going, you know? Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. I'm a sucker for that. And I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, this whole idea, like, I think you were alluding to it, Claire, then the second season, you know, there's so much talk about like, well, you know, like, like what is currency anyway? It's just an idea, you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. we're on the lemon currency, right? Like, yeah. what is any of this? Like, what does it matter if it's gold or fake gold? It's all made up. It's all kind of arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but I, I, uh, I, I did love that scene where, that but it is nice to see you know blaze is gonna be was on a hard run and he's gonna be on a hard run so it's always nice to see uh you know that little that little moment there that he gets to enjoy and when it's all laid all the materials are laid out on the desk yeah yeah it's nice for him to get yeah covers it by like his frustration you know right yeah like throws it at the wall and then you yeah, know. and and the show is not scared of think like using coincidence or like a little Deus Ex Machina, right? Like yeah. to kind of move things forward, right? It's just yeah. like it's right. it, I, again, I really enjoyed that that about it. Speaking of Deus Ex Machina, um, uh, my Alchemist of the Week is a shark ex machina. Nice. It's a shark. <laughs> shark. It's a shark. Um, because yeah, so Dud sustains one of many like horrible injuries that he sustains throughout the show. But in this instance, um, it gives him hope. Mm-hmm. Like him getting bitten by the shark reaffirms like his theory that, you know, his dad didn't die by like, like on purpose, you know, that it could, that it was an accident. Um, and it probably, since he was blaming himself for his dad uh, killing himself by, because he didn't go out like with him, which really recontextualizes why he took it so personally that uh, Liz would think that his dad killed himself because he was clearly blaming himself for it. Um, so he probably finds a way to like forgive him, forgive himself in that moment. And, um, and also he, you know, gets to uh, have a little bit more hope that it was an accident and that his dad wasn't like feeling so hopeless towards the end of his life. That's what he says when he's fading out. Told you it was a shark. Yeah. Told you it was a shark. Yeah. That's yeah, like it's, the it's, most stoned he looks in the yeah, entire show. Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> it's from blood loss, not from drugs. Yeah. <laughs> the least pothead on the whole show. Yeah. Yeah, it's just very transformative. I'll, I'll throw mine out there. Uh, mine is actually somebody we never see, and that is the branch manager at mm-hmm. uh, Long Beach Bank and Trust, I think it's called. Because, you know, and, you know, it's not the loan officer. She's just a go-between, right? She's just, you know, she's just another cog in the wheel. Uh, and ultimately, the branch manager is too. But but the branch manager had the ability to make, to wipe away the debt, you know? And I love, speaking yeah. of Dasu, however you say that, you know, that's all off camera too, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, 
we, I just love the idea that we get this nameless, faceless entity totally off screen that does, you know, one of the biggest state changes in the two seasons of the show. Um, so th- that's my, uh, you know, alchemist of the week. Yeah. Uh, we should, I should probably invent a whole backstory for this person, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, my alchemist of the week. I'm going to go with the watch. We we've mm. heard it's there's so much of the show that kind of revolves around it. We finally get the backstory of it. You know, it literally becomes four thousand dollars out of nothing. Something and out also, of nothing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like a fake, and so he gives him four thousand for it. And also, I thought that that moment when Dud is considering like trying to buy back the uh, the thing, and then he looks at the watch and as much as he wants the watch, I think back because he is sentimental and he wants it to remember his dad. I think he has this moment where he says, you know, it's just an object. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't I rather just have like, this would be so much better if I could just give this to Liz than to give it yeah. back to Bert yeah. to then have the thing, you know, which I'm running out of gas always, break, you know, it doesn't always break down. It just runs out of gas, but nonetheless, he that seeing the watch underneath in the in the casing um, allows him this moment of clarity, and mm-hmm. in that is in that moment I think the for me the watch becomes this like you know it's part of that whole idea where they all, all the, the characters kind of start to realize things and metamorphose metamorphosize and doors open and for Dud it's the watch, you know? And I I thought it was, you know, it also kind of represents his ability to, I think, to kind of like put his, to to be able to finish mourning his father. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I don't need the watch. You know, I have my dad in here and the watch, as much as I think it's going to help me because I'm sentimental, I don't actually need that because I have it here. And so, so there's a very big moment with that whole watch. And I loved that we learned the whole backstory of it. And we got a little more of his dad and the, I just love that whole very Mm -hmm. beginning and talking to Paul Ba and deciding against it. And then, you know, and just sort of seeing it. And I love the connection that Dud makes. It was just so gratifying that he's like, you know what? I'm okay. I don't need it. And he like walks away from the whole thing. And it was just like, I just, and so to me, I'm giving it to the watch. I had a lot of, those scenes really reminded me too of the, the interactions about the Lynx ring. In mm-hmm. episode one, you know, they're very mm-hmm. similar, like, what's the value of something, you know, we only attribute one kind of value to things, you know, so like, the, 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 those, those scenes kind of like jumped together in my mind. And I was like, when watching them in this episode 10, I was like, oh, this is like, it's similar to why you picked the watch. It's like, there's these like objects of transform, transformative value or di- diversified value that like, spark these journeys so yeah that's a great one yeah i love what Dud does hang on to is his toilet paper no matter what yeah yeah <laughs> that's the greatest yes. object of value that he apparently yeah. he's like i'm here to get my stuff and then he's yeah like, it, it cannot well, be overstated how how great that gag is yeah knowing that like we like so many people watched it during covid when totally. the big thing I know. was toilet paper you know like yeah. I just, it's just like, it's so like, it didn't even mean to be so prescient and it was, you know, like it it can't help itself. The show was just like, just magical and magnificent, you know? Well, and the toilet paper in itself feels like something of a symbol. It's like, it's utilitarian. It has inherent use value. It's not like it's worth, isn't really actually determined by how like scarce or like, it just, it has a purpose and uh, yeah. 
in rookie years. <laughs> yeah, it became a much more valuable commodity than anyone imagined. Yeah, right? We could have a toilet paper currency, right? So yeah, yeah. We kind of did for a while. Did. Yeah, we were like, yeah. 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 Jim, take us home, right? You got our, you're the okay. last. I got my alchemist of the week. So I'm going to do kind of a fake out. I was going to do Jocelyn. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about his speech and right. how, you know, it, it's juxtaposed with the Ernie Scott fight or humor effect, but it has so much meaning and it really sums up the whole show. And I did, I, I want to say a couple of quotes from it just because it is so, sum up so much of what the show is about. It's especially this one point in this part. So Chris, you're, you and I mean, all of us, but especially Chris, I feel like in past episodes, you've often pointed out how there's not that much technology on Lodge 49. There's not mm-hmm. the, that much use of the internet or of cell phones um, or talk about them. You know, occasionally they pop up and then it's noticeable when they do. And, you know, one thing Jocelyn says is when he's talking to Londa and to Melinda slash Clara, I do know that the more technology isolates us, isolates us, the more we need places like the lodge. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, a place to meet different sorts of people face to face. And I did think that was, you know, so some people need to hear that about this show and also about our lives, you know, mm-hmm. um, and consider it. But, you know, he thinks he's the hero. He thinks he kept the lodge open. And, it, and if that were true, he would be the alchemist of the week. But it's not really him. It's Connie, yeah. because Connie is the one who mentions the true lodge there in London at lodge mm-hmm. one in the tavern or the, the pub. And um, that leads to the sequence of events of lodge one, wanting to keep lodge 49 open mm-hmm. and then all the events of season two being able to happen. Can I just add very quickly in the spirit of true heroes, um, Alice, for like charging yeah. into the waves when yes. all of the dude surfers are running running away yeah. the other way and she like doesn't hesitate so yeah, yeah i think you're right i think we do see um uh maybe yeah women asserting their their kind of quiet heroism um mm-hmm. even as in the case of jocelyn he may uh take extra credit <laughs> <laughs> right. okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah that whole sequence with alice it's every time i watch it just ah it yeah. i still get kind of like chills Chills, yeah, yeah. Tears, yeah. yeah. We we had Celia on earlier this in our rewatch, but she is such a great example of I don't know mid tier character, whatever tertiary, yeah. whatever kind of thing you want to describe to it, who just makes the most of every moment. You know, <laughs> you you really do understand her character, and you're talking about mm-hmm. you know what's the compiled screen time in season one? Yeah, nine nine minutes. Maybe, you know, <laughs> it's amazing. Because she's so memorable and all that. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Well, Elizabeth, just a, first of all, you know, thank you so much for joining us uh, today for this episode and for uh, agreeing to come on. And then thank you for your your piece in Film Quarterly. I do think it, I, I, in my head, it sort of kicked off a sort of a, a new layer of, you know, the, the deeper essays, the cold take essays started to flow <laughs> after that. So, but I do agree with the Bart said earlier, yours was one of the ones that, uh, you know, kind of started to elevate itself amongst just like whatever TV recaps or just whatever online discourse. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the show. And, you know, uh, I don't know, tell people how they can find you, how they can 
follow you, how they can maybe take your course? Yeah, well, I'd love to. So you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Elizabeth Alsop, um, A-L-S-O-P. So um, yeah, please follow me. I'd love to to um, to connect with other fans, uh, other Lynx uh, enthusiasts. Um, yeah, and I, I'm, uh, I teach at CUNY. So if you're a CUNY student, uh, look me up. And um, yeah, I'm, I'll do a quick shout out. I'm working on a book right now about the, um, I think, overlooked for too long American filmmaker Elaine May, who's often known for her, um, her a genius comedy with Mike Nichols, but um, who was a really genius filmmaker in her own right. So, um, so check out the films of Elaine May if you haven't yet either, just as a sidebar. And thank you guys awesome. also so much for having me on the show. It was a really wonderful conversation and a really great opportunity to revisit um, a series that I love so deeply. So thank you. Any, uh, thank you. any rec- what are you watching right now? Oh my gosh, what am I watching? I'm watching the second season of I Think You Should Leave. Um, yeah. And like everyone else, uh, I'm a little slow, but it's it's great. And um, yeah, I'm actually, I, I have not watched Underground Railroad, but that's the next thing on my to watch list. So I haven't seen it yet, so anyway but uh yeah i i think there's just there's too much tv we know this it's hard so we we do our best we do our best we do our best all right well this brings us to the end of our season one rewatch but i predict we will have some other stuff rolling out so uh uh you know we we can continue to be uh your methadone of uh lodge 49 (laughs) draws uh that's our our uh, goal in life um and so we will probably be talking to you again. Thanks for listening. I'm going all the way, pretty baby.